Chapters twenty-five and twenty-six of the Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twenty-five. Sonia had the air of one steeped in an almost ecstatic content. On her return from the roof garden, she had exchanged her wonderful gown for a white silk negligee and her headdress of pearls for a quaint little cap. She was stretched upon a sofa drawn before the wide-flung French windows of her little sitting-room at the Ritz-Carlton, a salon decorated in pink and white, and filled almost to overflowing with the roses which she loved. By her side, in an easy-chair which she had pressed him to draw up to her couch, sat Lutchester. "'This,' she murmured, "'is one of the evenings which I adore. I have no work, no engagements, just one friend with whom to talk my fine clothes have done. I am myself, she added, stretching out her arms. I have my cigarettes, my eyes sherbet, and the lights and murmur of the city there below to soothe me. And you to talk with me, my friend. What are you thinking of me, that I am a little animal who loves comfort too much, eh? Lutchester smiled. We all love comfort, he replied. Some of us are franker than others about it. She made a little grimace. Comfort! It is my own word, but what a word! It is luxury I worship, luxury, and a friend. Is that perhaps another word too slight, eh? He met the provocative gleam of her eyes with a smile of amusement. You are just the same child, Sonia, he remarked. Neither climate nor country nor the passing years can change you. It is you who have grown older and sterner, she pouted. It is you who have lost the gift of living today as though tomorrow were not. There was a time, was there not, John, when you did not care to sit always so far away. She laid her hand, ringless, over-manicured, but delicately white, upon his. He smoothed it gently. You see, Sonia, he sighed, troubles have come that harden the hearts even of the gayest of us. She frowned. You are not going to remind me, she began. If I reminded you of anything, Sonia, he interrupted, I would remind you that you are a Frenchwoman. She stretched out her hand restlessly and took one of the Russian cigarettes from a bowl by her side. "'You are not, by any chance, going to talk seriously, dear John?' "'I am,' he assured her, very seriously. "'Oh, la, la,' she laughed. "'You, my dear gay companion, you who have shaken the bells all your life, you are going to talk seriously. And tonight, when we meet again after so long—' "'Ah, well, why should I be surprised?' she went on, with a pout. You have changed. When one looks into your face, one sees the difference. But to me, of all the people in the world, why talk seriously to me? I am just Sonia, the gypsy nightingale. I know nothing of serious things. You carry one very serious secret in your heart, he told her gravely, one little pain which must sometimes stab you. You are a Frenchwoman, and yet... Lutchester paused for a moment. Sonia, too, seemed suddenly to have been awakened into a state of tense and vivid emotion. The cigarette burned away between her fingers. Her great eyes were fixed upon Lutchester. There was something almost like fear in their questioning depths. "'Finish, finish,' she insisted. "'Continue.' "'And yet,' he went on, "'your very dear friend, the friend for whose sake you are here in America, is your country's enemy.' She raised herself a little upon the couch. "'That is not true,' she declared furiously. "'Maurice loves France. 
His heart aches for the misery that has come upon her. It is your country only which he hates. If France had but possessed the courage to stand by herself, to resist when England forced her friendship upon her, some of this tragedy would never have happened. Maurice has told me so himself. France could have peace to-day, peace at her own price. There is no peace which would leave France with the soul, save the peace which follows victory, Lutchester replied sternly. She crushed her cigarette nervously in her fingers, threw it away, and lit another. I will not talk of these things with you, she cried. It was not for this that you sought me out, eh? Tell me, at once, were these the thoughts you had in mind when you sent your little note? when you chose to show yourself once more in my life? For the first time of his own accord, he drew his chair a little nearer to hers. He took her hand. She gave him both, unresistingly. Listen, dear Sonia, he said. It is true that I am a changed man. I am older than when we last met, and there are the other things. You remember the Chateau d'Albert? Of course, she murmured, and the young Duc Albert's wonderful house-party. We all motored there from Paris. You and I were together. You haven't forgotten that, eh? I lay in that orchard for two days, he went on grimly, with a hole in my side and one leg pretty nearly done for. I saw things I can never forget in those days, Sonia. De Albert himself was killed. It was in that first mad rush. Of the chateau there remains but four blackened walls. Pauvre enfant, she murmured. But you are well and strong again now. Is it not so? You will not fight again, eh? You were never a soldier, dear friend. Just now, he confided, I have other work to do. It is that other work which has brought me to America. She drew him a little closer to her. Her eyes questioned him. There is, perhaps now, she asked, a woman in your life? There is, he admitted. She made a grimace. But how clumsy to tell me, even though I asked, she exclaimed. What is she like? but no i do not wish to hear of her if she is all the world to you why did you send me that little note why are you here because we were once dear friends sonia he said because i wish to save you from great trouble she shrank from him a little fearfully what do you mean sonia he continued with a note of sternness in his tone during the last two years you have gone back and forth between new york and paris six times I do not think that you can make that journey again. She was standing now with one hand gripping the edge of the table. John, John, what do you mean? she demanded, and this time her own voice was hard. I mean, he said, that when you leave here for Paris you will be watched day and night. The moment you set foot upon French soil you will be arrested and searched. If anything is found upon you, such as a message from your friend in Washington, well, you know what it would mean. Can't you see, you foolish child, the risk you have been running? Would you be cared to be branded as a spy, you a daughter of France? She struck at him. Her lace sleeves had fallen back, and her white arm with its little clenched fist flashed through the twilight aimlessly yet passionately. You dare to call me a spy, you, John, she shrieked. But it is horrible. It is the work of a spy, he told her gravely, to bring a letter from any person in a friendly capital and deliver it to an enemy. That is what you have done, Sonia, many times since the beginning of the war, so far without detection. It is because you are Sonia that I have come to save you from doing it again. She groped her way back to the couch. She threw herself upon it with her back towards him, 
her head buried in her hands. "'The letters are only between friends,' she faltered. "'They have nothing to do with the war.' "'You may have believed that,' Lutchester replied gently. "'But it is not true. You have been made the bearer of confidential communications from the Austrian embassy here to certain people in Paris, whom we will not name. I have pledged my word, Sonia, that this shall cease.' She sprang to her feet. All the feline joy of her languorous ease seemed to have departed. She was quivering and nervous. She stood over her writing-table. "'A telegraph blank!' she exclaimed. "'Quick! I will not see Maurice again. Oh, how I have suffered! This shall end it. See, I have written. Good-bye. He will understand. If he comes, I will not see him. Ring the bell quickly. There, it is finished.' A page-boy appeared, and she handed him the telegram. Then she turned a little pathetically to Lutchester. "'Maurice was foolish, very often foolish,' she went on unsteadily. "'But he has loved me, and a woman loves love so much. Now I shall be lonely. And yet there is a great weight gone from my mind. Always I wondered about those letters. You will be my friend, John. You will not leave me all alone?' He patted her hand. "'Dear Sonia,' he whispered solitude is not the worst thing one has to bear these days try and remember won't you that all the men who might have loved you are fighting for your country one way or another it is all so sad she faltered and you you are so stern and changed it is with me only as it is with the whole world he told her to-night though you have relieved me of one anxiety her eyes once more were for a moment frightened there was danger for poor little me he nodded it is past he assured her and it is you who have saved me she murmured ah mr john she added as she walked with him to the door if ever there comes to me a lover not for the days only but pour la vie i hope that he may be an englishman like you whom all the world trusts he laughed and raised her fingers to his lips over faithful you called us once he reminded her but that was when i was a child she said and in days like these we are children no longer end of chapter twenty five chapter twenty six lutchester left sonia and the ritz carlton a few minutes before midnight to find a great yellow moon overhead which seemed to have risen somewhere at the back of central park the broad thoroughfare up which he turned seemed to have developed a new and unfamiliar beauty the electric lights shone with a pale and almost unnatural glow. The flashing lights of the automobiles passing up and down were almost whimsically unnecessary. Lutchester walked slowly up Fifth Avenue in the direction of his hotel. Something, the beauty of the night perhaps, or some faint aftermath of sentimentality born of Sonia's emotion, tempted him during those few moments to relax. He threw aside his mask and breathed the freer for it once more he was a human being treading the streets of a real city his feet very much upon the earth his heart full of the simplest things all the scheming of the last few days was forgotten the great issues the fine yet devious way to be steered amidst the rocks which beset him even the depression of the calamitous news from the north sea passed away he was a very simple human being and he was in love it was all so unpractical, so illusionary, and yet so real. Events, actual happenings, he thrust all his thoughts of these away from his mind. What she might be thinking of him at the moment he ignored. 
he was content to let his thoughts rest upon her, to walk through the moonlit street, his brain and heart reveling in that subtle facility of the imagination which brought her so easily to his presence. It was such a vividly real Pamela, too, who spoke and walked and moved by his side. His memory failed him nowhere, followed faithfully the kaleidoscopic changes in her face and tone, showed him even that long, grateful, searching glance when their eyes had met in Von Tail's sitting-room. There had been times when she had shown clearly enough that she was anxious to understand, anxious to believe in him. He clung to the memory of these, pushed into the background that faint impression he had had of her at the roof-garden, serene and proud, yet with a faint look of something like pain in her startled eyes. A large limousine passed him slowly, crawling up Fifth Avenue. Lutchester, with all his gifts of observation dormant, took no notice of its occupant, who leaned forward, raised a speaking-tube to his lips, and talked for a moment to his chauffeur. The car glided round a side street and came to a standstill against the curb. Its solitary passenger stepped quietly out and entered a restaurant. The chauffeur backed the car a little, slipped from his place, and followed Lutchester. By chance the little throng of people here became thicker for a few moments, and then ceased. Lutchester drew a little sigh of relief as he saw before him almost an empty pavement. Then, just as he was relapsing once more into thought, some part of his subconscious instinct suddenly leaped into warning light. Without any actual perception of what it meant, he felt the thrill of imminent danger, connected it with that soft footfall behind him, and swung round in time to seize a deadly uplifted hand which seemed to end in a shimmer of dull steel. His assailant flung himself upon Lutchester with the live ferocity of a cat clinging to his body, twisting and turning his arm to wrest it free. It was a matter of seconds only before his intended victim, with a fierce backward twist, broke the man's wrist, and wrenching himself free from the knees which flung round him, flung him forcibly against the railings which bordered the pavement. Lutchester paused for a moment to recover his breath and looked around. A man from the other side of the street was running towards them, but no one else seemed to have noticed the struggle which had begun and finished in less than thirty seconds. The man who was halfway across the thoroughfare suddenly stopped short. He shouted a warning to Lutchester, who swung around. His late assailant, who had been lying motionless, had raised himself slightly with the revolver clenched in his left hand. Lutchester's spring on one side saved his life, for the bullet passed so close to his cheek that he felt the rush and heat of the air. The man in the center of the road was busy shouting an alarm vociferously, and other people on both sides of the thoroughfare were running up. Lutchester's eyes now never left the dark, doubled-up figure upon the pavement. His whole body was tense. He was prepared at the slightest movement to spring in upon his would-be murderer. The man's eyes seemed to be burning in his white face. He called out to Lutchester hoarsely, "'Don't move, or I shall shoot!' He looked up and down the street. One of the nearest of the hastening figures was a policeman. He turned the revolver against his own temple and pulled the trigger. Lutchester and a policeman walked slowly back along Fifth Avenue. Behind them a little crowd was still gathered around the spot, from which the body of the dead man had already been removed in an ambulance. "'I really remember nothing,' Lutchester told his companion, until I heard the footsteps behind me, and, turning round, saw the knife. This is simply an impression of mine, that he might have descended from the car which passed me and stopped just round the corner of that street. 
"'He's a chauffeur right enough,' the inspector remarked. "'It don't seem to have been a chance job, either. Looks as though he meant doing you in. Got any enemies?' "'None that I know of,' Lutchester answered cautiously. "'Why, the car's there still,' he added, as they reached the corner. "'And no chauffeur,' the other muttered. The officer searched the car and drew out a license from the flap pocket. The commissaire from the restaurant approached them. "'Say, what are you doing with that car?' he demanded. "'Better fetch the gentleman to whom it belongs,' the inspector directed. "'What's up, anyway?' the man persisted. "'You do as you're told,' was the sharp reply. The commissaire disappeared. The officer studied the license which he had just opened. "'What's the name?' Lutchester inquired. The man hesitated for a moment, then passed it over. "'Oscar H. Fisher,' he said. "'Happen to know the name?' Lutchester's face was immovable. He passed the license back again. They both turned round. Mr. Fisher had issued from the restaurant. "'What's wrong?' he asked hastily. "'The commissaire says you want me, Mr. Officer.' The inspector produced his pocket-book. "'Just want to ask you a few questions about your chauffeur, sir.' Fisher glanced at the driver's seat of the car, as though aware of the man's disappearance for the first time. "'What's become of the fellow?' he inquired. "'Shot himself,' the inspector replied, after a deliberate attempt to murder this gentleman. Mr. Fisher's composure was admirable. There was a touch of gravity mingled with his bewilderment. Nevertheless, he avoided meeting Lutchester's eyes. "'You horrify me!' he exclaimed. "'Why, the fellow's only been driving for me for a few hours.' "'That's so,' the officer remarked with a grunt. "'Get any references with him?' "'As a matter of fact, I did not,' Fisher admitted frankly. "'I discharged my chauffeur yesterday at a moment's notice, and this man happened to call just as I was wanting the car out this afternoon. He promised to bring me references to-morrow from Mr. Gould and others. I engaged him on that understanding. He told me that his name was Kay, Robert Kay. That is all that I know about him, except that he was an excellent driver. I am exceedingly sorry, Mr. Lutchester, he went on, turning towards him, that this should have happened. So you two know one another, eh? the officer observed. Oh, yes, we know one another, Lutchester admitted dryly. I shall have to ask you both for your names and addresses, the official continued. I think I won't ask you any more questions at present. Seems to me headquarters had better take this on. I shall be quite at your service, Lutchester promised. The man made a few more notes, saluted, and took his leave. Fisher and Lutchester remained for a moment upon the pavement. It is a dangerous custom, Lutchester remarked, to take a servant without a reference. That will be a warning to me for the remainder of my life, Fisher declared. I too have learned something, Lutchester concluded, as he turned away. End of chapter 26. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's audiobooks.com